Cells. Cells. Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Interlinked. You're listening to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-hosts. It's a me, Mario. Patrick, I have a mustache tonight. <laughs> and Micah, not happy about the mustache. And uh, Peter from the Midwest. Hi, Peter. Welcome back to the show. It's been so long. Yeah, it's good to be back. I'm excited to talk about this one. Me too. And Micah has been almost a mainstay lately. She's been on, you've been on probably three or four episodes in the last two months. Which I has know. Been I'm awesome. so, so honored. Thank you guys. <laughs> well, you know, you know, the driving factor behind that is Micah just finished school yet again. And now she has a, a BSN in nursing. So not only is she an RN, she's Whoa. RN BSN. Hey. So she's <laughs> finally done with school. <laughs> And she could be on more episodes, which is pretty great. Yeah, I'm very excited. Awesome. This episode is another anatomy of a scene, and we are going to discuss the love scene in 2049. And we're calling it a love scene. I, I guess what you, what you could call it's not really a sex scene. It is a love scene, but it's it's more than a love scene. And we felt like it was apropos to talk about this scene and how, and we're going to eventually talk about the love scene in 2019. Um, and there's a lot in this that I want to discuss that I've wanted to discuss for a long time. Patrick agreed. And so here we are to discuss the love scene in 2049. We switched order, actually. We were initially going to discuss a, a kind of parallel but very different scene in the first film tonight and then go to this. And then we were like, you know what? We've already broken the Rachel Deckard forceful uh, passion scene. I don't know how we can even classify that because it's a very complicated scene to try to classify. We've already done quite a bit on that. And we want to do this scene first to have a new lens to try to look at that one through. So we're going to get there and we're probably going to do another episode or two in the middle, just kind of break these up a little bit. But that's kind of the plan. And before we get to that, uh, I just want to, on behalf of all of us, do a huge and I mean huge thank you to all of the patrons who have joined. Our Patreon has been unbelievable lately. You guys are joining left and right. It is thrilling, and we are so excited. And one of my favorite parts of this has been that not only are we getting to like meet more of you and getting to have more help to pay with the website registration and domains and with you know getting our short film finished, etc., but we're also just getting so many more messages from you guys lately. Like I feel like our email is blowing up with really great stuff. And on, on another episode where we have more time for it, I want to make sure we read more of those. But just speaking personally, I've been having a great time talking with so many of you patrons and otherwise just people emailing us. So thank you for you know joining and thank you for uh, consulting and, and for conversing. And you've just been great. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to read the names of patrons who joined just in March up until this point. We're recording this on March 22nd, and if we get more people after this, but there's still March patrons, I'll read them in April as well. But without further ado, here's our March patrons. Ian Hughes, Nick Bro, Jacob Abraham, Hannah Toops, Francisco Martinez, Frederick Faith, Ross Yost, Elliot Rocca, Ian Dunn, Zeno Queen, Tom Prentice, Brian McKnight, Nick Cannon, Gavin Hay, Joshua Rivers, Mark 
Mattis is the latest one who just joined today. And one of those patrons, Frederick, has an amazing custom toy business that he does at conventions, et cetera. And so he's going, he's working on some Blade Runner stuff right now. And we're looking forward to sharing some of that with you when it's done on Instagram. Um, and you're going to love it. And so thank you to everybody who's supporting us. You guys are just freaking awesome. And we're so grateful. Thought you weren't interested. Marky man. You liked her, I could tell. She's real. I want to be real for you. You are real for me. To start off this episode, what I'd like to do is get everyone's first impressions on the scene in 2049. And of course, just to, I know, I, I don't mean to like um, talk, not, not that I'm talking down, but over explain. Of course, the scene we're talking about is when Mariette comes to Kay's apartment because Joy has called her there and she syncs with Joy. And eventually after they've synced up, Joy and Mariette make love to Kay. And uh, I, I think it's a fascinating scene. And I'm curious what everyone's impression of that scene is before we get into it. Yeah, I'll just kind of kick things off because I was just, as, as Patrick said, we were, sort of things got changed a little. So I, I was cramming for the wrong test tonight. Um, so I quickly switched gears and jumped in. And one of the main things I think with this scene is I pretty much forgot where exactly it falls into the movie. I mean, it's a, it's a memorable scene and it's, it's one that I, I I've thought about plenty of times, but I don't, couldn't really remember where it fit in um, to the movie in general. And some of this will, will touch on the 2019 discussion that we'll have later and also a little bit today, but just kind of to, to add on to, to Jamie's description, I just wanted to sort of put it in. So if anyone can't remember, like I couldn't just a few minutes ago. Um, so just before is when Kay was meeting with Dr. Staline. And we all know that that's one of my favorite scenes uh, when essentially he discovers that his memories aren't his. Um, all the best ones are hers for, from later in the movie. But so he, he walks out, he's picked up by the LAPD and he sits down for his uh, his baseline test that he completely fails. Just after that, um, he's then found in the apartment, and that's when the scene happens. And I'll get into it a little bit more. And my first impressions have nothing to do with that setup, but I just want everyone to remember where that sits. And then immediately following the scene, then is um, famously um, two things. One, love picks up on the fact that. Uh, Joy destroys her base station, and then immediately following that is when Kay realizes, or it's you know, is is the famous scene of him out in front of the the mass-produced Joy. So just kind of the book and the two things, just for for later, because I'll get into that. But for for now, um, I guess my first impression was it felt unlike 2019. It felt tender. It felt like a, a real moment of moving forward again in the relationship between Kay and Joy. Um, I think I've been pretty vocal on here that I'm not really a fan of the rebel um, replicants, um, Frasia and her crew. Uh, but so I, I wasn't too thrilled to see her back in the room and her involvement in it all. But I think just to touch base and kind of pass this quickly um, after having spent a lot of time set that up is, is pretty much my first impression was this is a, a way to continue the connection between Kay and Joy and, you know, kind of solidify the audience's at least understanding that between them 
um, they have sought to, and it sounds like a middle schooler description, but kind of move their relationship forward. So that, that was sort of my initial impression. I'm, I'm trying to kind of put myself back in the place of first seeing the movie for the first time as a brand new Blade Runner fan, because um, to go back, I wasn't a huge Blade Runner fan, to be totally honest, before 2049 came out. Patrick, you introduced me to the original movie, 2019, and I struggled a lot with that movie. A lot of that struggle does actually come from the scene that we will talk about later between Deckard and Rachel. I had a lot of visceral reactions to that scene, as many people do. So going into 2049, I was a little bit skeptical of how much I would love it. And as I'm sure everybody knows who has listened to this podcast, I very much am a huge Blade Runner fan now. So all that to the side, this scene in particular, um, and especially in researching for this episode tonight and rewatching the scene, I'm struck by how I tend to put myself in Joy's virtual shoes a lot because I, I, you know, I mean, famously on this podcast, I love Joy. I love to talk about her. And she really kind of touched something in me as a character. So when I watch this scene, I kind of empathize with her the most because I'm just looking at what she has done and and what a, a, the gift is that she's trying to give Kay, which is of physical closeness. So I see it also, like you, Peter, as a very tender moment, as a way that they get to move forward. And she gets to kind of, Joy gets to kind of fulfill her goal of being quote unquote real to him. And she even says, I want to be real for you. And um, it's both heartbreaking and um, romantic that Kay answers her with, you are real for me. Another thing that was was striking me today was that the presence of Mariette in the apartment is such a interesting, I don't know, for lack of a better word, like vibe. When she comes in, it's not so much a happiness to see her from Kay or Joy for that matter, but there's also not um, an unwelcoming attitude toward her. It's strange. It's it's kind of like she almost clashes with the world of their little apartment that they've created together, Kay and Joy. And Mariette comes in and she closes the door and she's just almost like, it's like an intruder who has been invited in or who has been told to come. But yet there's this like feeling of, you know, you're not really here. And um, that is kind of solidified when Joy tells her to shh, I'm trying to sink. So it's like, it's almost as if like they're using Mariette, which they kind of are. And that fact coupled with the fact that this, the love scene ends famously on the advertisement of Joy on the side of the skyscraper with the announcer saying, she, Joy can be whatever you want her to be. Joy can go whatever wherever you want her to go. So there's this tenderness to the scene, but yet to me, for some reason, that scene makes me so sad because of the truth that is underneath the moment because it is it's a it's a charade you know it's a it's a it's a role-playing thing that they get to engage in to try to make something a bit more physically real but at the end of the day joy goes back to being her holographic self mariette leaves um and joy is no longer quote unquote real for Kay. So that scene makes me so sad, just like the scene with the giant 
projector demon joy makes me so sad because it, to me, what I'm feeling is joy yearning to be something for Kay that she can never be. And that just makes me so sad. So sorry for the long winded thing, but yeah, it can be, it's both tender and sad to me. You're a special lady here. Okay, let's do it. Like a good country song. <clears throat> um, this is a, it's a, it's such a complicated scene and I'm going, I, I'm, I'm going to talk about my first impressions of it. And then I kind of want to talk a little bit about how it feels now. And so I, you know, we can all kind of get to that with our comments as we go too. But I feel like for me, um, the first time I saw it, it was very tender. Like the primary overriding thing that I got from it was that it was a loving, tender moment of connection for two people people or beings who had a very hard time connecting. Like that's, that's the way that I saw it. I really saw it as their love story. And I, I think the movie wants us to see it like that, at least at first. But I remember as the, as the scene plays on feeling a sense of almost unease with the way that's playing out. Um, and like, right when it should be like, quote, should be kind of erotic or like intimate, there's this strange removal, which is interesting where it's, it's like, very desexualized, even though it's a situation that would play into a very kind of sexual, you know, idea, which is interesting. It's like the camera kind of moves away and we're kind of given this sort of like abstract view of it. But with the, the big driving thing in that for me is that score and the way the score is used. I'm sure we'll get to that tonight quite a bit. But um, of course, the scene starts in silence and dialogue. And then when the when the music kicks in, when they're syncing, we hear Joy's theme that we first heard on the rooftop. It's a track called Rain, and it's really Joy's theme. And it's my favorite part of the whole soundtrack. I think it's just an absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous piece of music. And then that starts to underlie the beginning of their love scene as they're syncing up. And then we get the rest of this track, which is this kind of low, murmuring, urgent, churning music that feels different. It feels like it's communicating something to us. But what I love is that it's very hard to put your finger on what that is. And even now, having seen this movie, you know, 20 or something times, I still have a hard time pinning down exactly what that moment is trying to communicate. What I think it ultimately is trying to communicate is something that's very personal to whomever is watching it. Just like Joy is a case study in that as a character, right? We see what we want to see in that interaction. But I do think that starting with sweetness and light and ending with darkness and, and uncertainty is a deliberate way that Villeneuve and um, and Zimmer and Wallfish are kind of guiding us on this emotional connection towards like there might be more going on than we think about. And then, of course, going outside and seeing, you know, the the advertisement, like Micah was just saying, that's a pretty clear like th that uh, honestly to me feels too like. That, that's a, a rare moment where the movie is a little kind of sophomoric to me, which is weird. It, like that to me, that moment feels kind of like, oh, that's a little obvious in a movie that has no moments like that. You know what I mean? Um, that being said, it's interesting. And the first time I saw it, though, for me, the overriding sense was that it was really, really loving, but it was loving. And I was wondering why I was kind of uncomfortable with it. And I think now I know both more about why 
while also knowing less about why. And that's that's a pretty great thing that a film can do. What about you, Jamie? I'll be the odd man out. And I, I did not read it as loving. I didn't read it as unloving. I just read it as interesting when I first saw it. The first viewing of the film, I was so captivated. I was just, you know, you can barely process what you're seeing. I mean, I'm sure everyone remembers their first viewing of this film. And it's like you're being run over by steam train. I mean, it's just so intense and there's so much going on. And I just remember seeing their fingers in his head, like in his hair and how strange that was. It was just a strange moment. And I, it was puzzling to me. And oddly enough, I love the moment that it eventually switches to the billboard because it's almost asking you, what are you seeing? What did you just see? Do we know what we saw? Do we think we know what we saw? Did we see everything Joy wanted us to see? Did we experience everything Joy wanted us to experience? What was this about? And it's this, I feel like the billboard moment is, it's one of my favorite moments in the film with the music because it's asking you this question and there's no clear answer, which I think is the Blade Runner experience, depending on, you know, for both films. So my first impression was just com complex. I didn't really know what I was watching. And also, as we'll get into this, Kay's expressionless expression is interesting. He's a, he's a hard read. And uh, I didn't get the sense that he was completely willing for this scene. Um, on my first viewing, on my first impression, I was like, hmm, what does he think of what's going on? He seems uncomfortable with this, fully uncomfortable with it. It didn't seem loving to me. It didn't seem, again, unloving. It just seemed like, oh, she sprung this on him. She didn't talk to him about it. Somehow she called Mariette. I don't know how she got Mariette's contact information, although she's Joy's electricity. So maybe she went in the circuits and I don't know how she contacted Mariette, which is doesn't really matter, but still. So a lot of my headspace was wrapped up in the strangeness of it all. I hadn't seen a, a scene ever like this before. The only thing close to it was the scene in the film Her, where Scarlett Johansson's character pays for a woman to come over to meet Joaquin Phoenix's character, who she's in love with. And the first thing, you know, she, the woman that she hires to play her is locked in from the moment she walks into the apartment. There's similar scenes and there's similar uncomfortableness in these scenes. And that's kind of my first impression. And I'll, I'll kind of leave it there as we go on and discuss this further. But yeah, a lot of why I bookended it, um, the way I did just a little while ago, too, was to sort of get into those things. I think there's a lot of different ways to look at it. And it's, it's you know, there's three, I'll call them people involved. It's hilarious in, in a sense because they're three non-humans, um, but three of, you know, the most human people. There's three people involved in the scene. And I think there's sort of three undercurrents but then there's the undercurrents coming from both sides of it, you know, the, the scene before and the scene um, then following and then the scene right before the scene. And none of this is making sense if you're not seeing inside my head. But so I'll just I'll try and touch on just a couple of these things and, and quickly pass it on and kind of keep trying to do this a little bit throughout this episode. But, you know, one of the main things um, that uh, that I've picked up on, you know, over the episodes is, is former. Um, co-host of the show Dan one of his favorite things to talk about was was hands in the movies he I, I remember a lot of his focus was on on hands and um, I'll get into that again sorry to keep throwing stuff out but I'm just trying to go through a lot of this here but um, one of the things I've sort of picked on a lot is there's a lot of scenes with with someone 
behind your shoulder or some behind a lot of scenes of someone behind someone's shoulder. And, and I don't know if it's supposed to be a scene of, and a lot of those are, you know, either empathy of this person behind getting a feeling of what the person in the foreground is feeling, or if it's a scene of, of um, spying or intrusion um, there's playful scenes of when joy and care going through the DNA chart and she pops up and she's right behind them and you're seeing, and you don't know whose point of view is the, the DNA machine, but it's one of theirs. Um, then goes into my favorite scene with Kay and Dr. Staline. Um, through the reflection, you, you see her viewing her own memory behind Kay. So it's almost like she's peeking behind his shoulder and she is really peeking into him, you know, seeing it. And sort of one f- fluid motion that I just kind of wanted to at least touch on that I've picked up now since that, you know, initial tender scene is in fact its connection to 2019 and um, a lot of what you guys discussed it's episode 25 if anyone wants to push pause now go listen to that and come back it would actually be helpful but you don't have to do that um it's one of the, the best episodes on the, on the show i think but to come back to this um a lot of what the discussion in episode 25 was between uh, a lot of the people here um and plus evie and clara and, and dan um, was, you know, the, the loss of agency and, and sort of it almost felt not maniacal, not tricky. It just seemed a little unfair um, in 2019 that Deckard um, is now entering into this type of very high um, emotion and complex emotions with someone who has just had everything stripped away from her. Um, but I think there's very something similar going on here. Kay was just in with Dr. Staline and just realized that a lot of what he believed and what they wanted uh, at least some of us to believe um, during 2049, which is that Kay believed he was the child. He had Dr. Staline's memories in the orphanage and all those other memories. And those all just got ripped out. Those aren't his. He realized they were hers and that everything that similar to Rachel that she was doing is now gone. And now immediately following that, he goes back to L.A. Um, they do the baseline test on it. Um, you see Joshi, which I still don't understand. And if any viewers want to, um, listeners, sorry, want to write in there, if anyone's dove into what's on those computer screens that she's looking at during that baseline. I mean, you see the one that says anomaly detected, but then there's a printout and there's actually words coming down. There's a weird I don't know if it's a synapsis of brains, but there's a light between almost like two planets. Just so you guys can see it's that I've I've never known what she's looking at, but she's able to see it and she's able to see inside him because she says, Hey, I just looked inside you and you don't look like you, which is an interesting thing to kind of go on with this discussion too. But it's just odd that he's just been completely ripped out of his memories He's now lost his job, which to Kay is his identity. At the end of that scene with Joshi, she says, I'll give you 48 hours to get back on baseline. But after that, it's out of my hands. Um, So he's similar to Rachel in the fact that he's nothing of what he was. And now he walks into his apartment. And like Micah said, Mariette pops in. He isn't, uh, you know, he doesn't tell her to get out. um, But sort of this whole scenario that now we're talking about tonight in great detail starts to unfold and so again 
you know, I'll stop here. But for me, looking at it again now under a lot of several different lenses is the fact that, you know, Kay's going into this sort of not himself. He's someone new, but I don't think he even knows what he is either. He's lost, like you've talked about with Rachel a hundred times. He's lost his agency. He's lost his job. He realizes none of his memories are his own. And now this happens. I think it's really cool that you brought that context in for us because it really helps me to um, remember exactly where the scene falls. And I think that sort of shattered state that Kay finds himself in is really present. And it just, it kind of fills that apartment room. And that it's interesting, Peter, that you bring up that line that Joshi, Joshi says, um, you don't, I just looked inside you and you don't look like you. And that line I forgot about until you just said it just now. But every time I see that line, when I view the movie, it stands out because of how both intimate and invasive it is. Someone with authority over Kay, who has total control of his life, essentially, has said, hey, I know that you're not being you. I know that there's something wrong. You got 48 hours to get back to baseline. So that more than almost anything has to be terrifying to Kay. And I'm wondering, it just, it makes me think about what he's thinking on his journey home, what he's thinking on his walk up that flight of stairs as people are probably yelling derogatory things at him, as we know they tend to do on his walk home because of who he is. And it's just like to go from the place of being completely shattered it is very similar to Rachel in the moment she has with Deckard. But what's different, um, and that's maybe why all of us are tending to have some issue with the feeling of the tenderness versus the uncomfortable, like urgency, the uncomfortable feeling of intrusion is it's it's because of all of these factors that are kind of in front of Kay and inside Kay at the moment. And he's it's, 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 you're right, Jamie, he doesn't really consent to it, does he? Like, it's, he's not saying no, but he definitely doesn't look like all gung-ho for this kind of strange, synced love scene. He looks, he looks terrified to me. And I think it's really fascinating to know that he has all those things in his head that he isn't who he wanted to be. And that's what it is. He wanted to be the child and he's not, and he's just been shown that. And it's, it's just really interesting. Actually, though, that's before he thinks he's, he doesn't know he's not the child until Fraser tells him he isn't towards right. the end. He thinks he is the child at this point. Oh. Yes. Yes. Wow. So he goes to Staline. Staline confirms that this memory is real. He has already found oh, the yeah, horse. Yeah, yeah. He believes he's the child. And then Joy is like, I always told you you were special. His world has been rocked. So what's interesting about so interesting about the scene is with rachel she's just been informed that she's not a human now Kay believes he is part human and not only is he part human he has a mother out there somewhere mm. so and i i would imagine that's what's driving so now he needs to go and find his father um so his world is like it's like the inverse of rachel in some ways yeah so he's regardless he's knocked off of baseline and someone with great authority has noticed. So there is that sort of feeling of like, oh my gosh, my destiny is kind of unfolding and I don't really have much power over it. I have to follow it. But also people who have power over me have noticed and oh my gosh, what are the consequences of being this child? 
So it is, it's just loaded. It's totally loaded. Jamie, I don't, I mean, I agree that I think that's, that's sort of the, the, the take on the, on his realization. I always thought, and this maybe again, I just have this problem with Frazier in this group. I don't know why, but I think in the Dr. Staline scene, I always figured that he figured out, it may not be decided yet that he's, is not the child. He may be the child. It's always been at that point, he sort of realizes I can't do what I do anymore. You know, he's been sort of comfortable in his K-ness of I keep to myself, I do what I'm told, and I'm going to get through this somehow. I don't know where through this is, what the other end is for a replicant, likely just retirement at the same time. But I think, you know, his his stress his anxiety that all comes out in that, in that outburst is sort of, it's not going to be okay anymore. And I always read it as he saw Dr. Staline tear up and sort of, he's intuitive. He's a detective. He's, he's, he's built to read people and realizes that that moment, she's telling me that this is a real memory. I'm not real. She's real shit. You know, sort of that's the real, that's just the, ah, fuck, nothing's going to be the same anymore. But again, I, I and then I've always kind of seen um, Frasia sort of being kind of condescending to him in a way, like, oh, you thought you were the one? Oh, so did all of us, you know, be like us. Oh, you're not any different than us replicants. Join our side. But he is different in the end that he chooses a, di- a different path. And, and Jamie, you did a great job of talking about that, I think a little bit in that episode 25 that, you know, he's sort of instructed by them to go kill Similar, like Deckard's instructed to kill Rachel, but he says, no, I'm not going to do that. Micah, quick, before I, I p- pass it off. Yeah, I mean, the, the you know, I've, I've, I've seen inside, you don't look like you, is then echoed. And again, there's a lot of weird echoes, like Jamie's talking about with the hands and the different, there's three different bodies moving around. But that line is then echoed again at the end of the scene where um, Joy's escorting Marionette out and Marionette tells to her, hey, I've been inside you. There's not much there. Again, extremely intrusive. And I think coming from trying to be empathetic with joy, the fact that you just shared this moment and now you're going to throw it back in my face um, is, is very, I think, disheartening and sort of a gut punch to joy. And then the next scene of the large joy is just the ultimate gut punch to, to Kay then. But yeah, I, I guess... You know, I guess, Jamie, a lot of what, you know, you've talked about, too, it seems like um, you've sort of touched on the fact of Kay not entirely um, being on board or consenting to this as well. Do you want to explain that a little further? Look at you. Quiet, now I have to sink. To discuss Kay in relationship to this scene is to discuss agency, number one. What is his agency? Does he have agency? I don't know if we can answer that question fully. So I think the only agency he has is he knows he's a Blade Runner and he works for the LAPD and he has this this companion made of digital light. That's it. That's who, who Kay is. Who is Kay outside of this? I don't know. I don't know who Kay is outside of this. So... But so let's take all of that and the fact that I'm going to push back on you a little bit, Peter, uh, in terms of I believe Kay fully believes that he is the child. Everything he's not only has he found the the horse with the date that confirms the date. He's also seen that date where he's found the box of bones where Rachel is buried. I fully believe that Kay believes he is the child. He is the one. And when Fraser says to him, 
you thought it was you. And he sinks back into that chair. There is disappointment in his face. There is, it's the first time, except for with Staline, that I really see Kay emote. Like Kay was, in my opinion, Kay was banking on this. He had more, he had more agency, I guess, uh, natural agency because of this new information. And then Fraser stripped that right away from him. Rachel had a girl. She didn't have a boy. And there weren't twins. There was just one child. Moving back a little bit. So we have Kay, who's off of his baseline. Um, and I also think to your to your question about the image, I think, I think uh, Joshi is looking at brain activity and she knows what to look at. And she knows what to see when brain activity is on baseline and when brain activity isn't on baseline. She's looking at synapses firing or whatever, whatever they, I would love to hear the people who designed that, how they designed it and what, what they thought when they were designing it, because it'll probably inform us a little bit more. But so in this scene, you have Kay who thinks he has a mother and he has a father, something replicants do not have. So this is a half replicant per se, or maybe all replicant, who knows, uh, who has a mother and a father. And his world has been rocked. His psychology has been rocked. His emotional state is just completely changed. And then he's dragged into this love scene this moment and his it's almost like he's not present he's not even present enough to really i mean they don't show them making love they don't show them having sex which i i'm fine with i, I don't need to see that but at the same time it would have been interesting to see his face during those moments how present he was he doesn't seem present when he's in that apartment his his mind is elsewhere he walks into his apartment Joy is standing right there even though she's been with him the whole time cuz he has the emanator joy standing there waiting for him and all of a sudden, Mariette enters the apartment. And it's like, hey, it's not even, he's not in this place. But Joy has taken it upon herself to make love to him, um, despite what he might want, despite not asking him. And it's very interesting. And again, the idea uh, that this person who has never been a child realizes he was a child, at least in this moment in the film, he, he understands that he has been a child. Um, and what that means. And maybe he has a mother out there looking for him and a father out there looking for him and how that was probably just eating him alive. That's why, in my opinion, he continues to go look for Deckard because he's going to look for his father. If he didn't think he was the child, he wouldn't go looking for him. I think if he was just on the scene, if he was just, okay, I could be the child, but I have a job to do something way deeper is going on with him. Um, but getting back to the scene, and uh, I'm going to reference again sort of the end of the scene where you see Joy and you see, again, these. there's a big question. Joy is everything you want her to be. She is everything, you know, she's everything you want to see. She's everything you want to hear. So in this moment, is that all we're seeing with Joy? Is this a tender moment for, for Joy that's outside of her programming or is this Joy being Joy? That's the question. And that's that's uh, the question that I have. I don't have a particular answer for that because I still don't know what joy is aside from just social media that talks to you and tells you what you want to hear and is very pretty and it's a girl and it's a beautiful woman. So everyone love, everyone's responding to her because she's this pretty girl, you know? Uh, yeah, there's just so much going on in this moment. And then he has this stranger with her hands in his head and he's, and you can see his eyes like trying to like parse it, like okay, I'm about to kiss this woman that looks kind of like Joy, but it's not Joy, but it's Mariette. And Joy had said to him earlier, she, you liked her, I could tell. Maybe that's true. Maybe he did like her, but you can kind of 
I could might be able to see somebody on the street that I might find as attractive, but that doesn't mean if they show up in my bedroom, I'm going to kiss them and make love to them. Like those, that's a, that's a big jump, but joy made that choice for him. And that's to me, what's going on in this scene. Joy made a choice for Kay. Joy made a choice to make love to Kay without Kay's consent. And I feel like you can read part of that in his face. One thing jumping into that, because Jamie, I know you love the nefarious side of, of joy, which is always really fun. So I'll, I'll play into that a little, because I was thinking about that when I was watching this uh, again for, for tonight. Um, so, you know, part of what Joshi says is, you know, you've got 48 hours to get back in baseline. And we know at least I, I buy into, or I, I like to think about sometimes in my viewing of it, that joy is in some ways a, a, a pacification device by Wallace for replicants that keep them, you know, keeps them at his, his little box, keeps them happy. He's, he's excited to go home for the night. He's happy to just be in that apartment surrounded by hate. Um, but in there, he can have whatever he wants with joy. Um, but, you know, and, and similar to, you know, he, he leaves Staline's office and you have Joshi with the line of, hey, you know, you're supposed to be out there doing this mission for me, killing babies. And instead, we catch you fucking around outside a upgrade lab. I've always thought that there's got to be something that he's went off baseline with his little anxiety attack that triggers something they're outside waiting for him or there's other reasons. But similarly, um, you know, the second after the, the this scene, after the love scene, and they turn off Joy's base station, what does that do? That alerts love. All of a sudden, boom, Joy is now off, and she comes in. So again, just interesting, interesting bookends. And and so, sort of part of my question, and it goes. I'm just throwing a question right back after you asked when Pat or Jamie was, you know, so. You know, is Joy's nefarious activity here maybe an attempt to simply get Kay back on baseline for a minute with a little, with a little loving? I don't know, but there's something there more than just, you know, it, it seems odd timing. Oh, it's definitely odd timing, and it could very well be for that reason. I, th- I haven't really considered that before. I think part of what's interesting about this scene is that we are seeing forces outside of the immediate environment, the observable environment at work. You know, because in addition to that could be the case, right? Also, this could be Mariette doing reconnaissance work for the freedom movement. And this could be part of her getting to know Kay and getting to get inside of him in some ways and to figure out if he's, you know, significantly altered from baseline. And if maybe this is like a good opportunity to get him on their side because they do have a connection in the food. Well, it's when she drops that the honing device in his jacket too, at the end of it. That's she also literally does that. You're right. Yeah, exactly. So like, this is clearly there's, there's also that going on too, I think. And what, what, what I think I'm, it's cool that we're getting to this is that this is as destabilized as K gets, right? The movie starts with K as the, you know, icon of having his shit together, right? Like he is, we see him in juxtaposition with previous Nexus models. We see how much more collected he is, how much more in control of his emotions he is. We see how he's constant K. We have all these, you know, great opportunities to see him, for example, being the target of epithets, but not even seeming to notice. You know, we see him going about his business, being efficient and being unperturbed. And we go from that to like an hour and 40 minutes later, or whenever this is in the movie, and he is screaming. He's crying. He doesn't have a job anymore. You know, he has no idea where he's going next. He thinks he's the, a child of, you know, P- 
potentially a human at this point. He has no idea, you know, what what is going on and what tomorrow brings. And that's the context in which this happens. And so if you look at it as a loving moment, it's joy being there to comfort him, right? If you look at it as a nefarious moment, it's joy as some insidious social media tool trying to get him calm, right? If you look at it as a reconnaissance moment, it's Mariette taking advantage of a weak opportunity in his life to get him to track him, basically, right? And if you look at it as a a moment of what does K want, that's probably the most interesting one of all. Because if joy is everything you want to you know see and everything you want to hear, if that's still true, then this is what K wants, right? If she's doing what she's programmed to do, she's doing what K wants. But it seems pretty clear that it's not what K wants, right? It seems like he is uncomfortable. And you can read that again if you're looking at it as a romantic thing, you can read it as, you know, it's awkward and furtive and he doesn't know exactly, you know, where to put his hands. And it's kind of like a sixth grader at a dance kind of moment, which is also a sweet and valid way to look at the scene and really is, is primarily how I saw it the first time. Um, but if joy is no longer doing what K wants, that's the thing that's so interesting too. So joy, if that's true, has also deviated significantly from her programming or is being, you know, the, the, she's operating at the beck and call of somebody else's desires. Right. So then there's that level too. We also now, we have a joy who has destroyed her, you know, home unit. So she is now very vulnerable we have a joy who has been acting very differently. She's, you know, having connection issues and things like she's, she's been through a lot just as, as a, you know, organism of whatever type she is. So she's also destabilized as fuck at this point in the movie, I think. Right. And it's easy to lose sight of that. And then into that, we have Mariette who is not destabilized. Right. And a really great indicator of that is when they're kissing. If you notice, although they're superimposed, uh, Joy's eyes are closed, right? But Mariette's eyes are open. And Mariette is just straight up looking, watching him. She's not doing it like erotically. She's not like, I can't believe this is happening. She's studying him. She's She, she is observing him. So that's another angle on this that I want to kind of get into is that it's a rare moment where we have this, you know, three level study in how replicant and replicant adjacent consciousnesses work right we have joy saying i need i need to sink right so clearly there's something going on there where joy is interpolating her self onto mariette in some way right we have mariette who knows what to do because she says all right let's do this right and she kind of stands there and then they wave their hands around and they sync up so mariette this is something that mariette has probably done before right this is probably a service that is provided for emanator derived, you know, people and replicant love models to be able to sync, right? And then we have Kay, who seems bewildered by the whole thing, who has clearly never been through anything like this before, even though he's in the presence of this thing that was created for his pleasure, you know, for, for his romantic fulfillment, whether genuine or manufactured, right? And that's what's so fascinating about this is we have this like three-way study three ways, a three-way study, a menage a trois, if you will, into how these replicant and replicant adjacent consciousness 
consciousnesses intertwine. And in that is a lot of the complexity of, I think, why this scene reads so differently, depending on who you're watching during it. Something that's really cool to to go off of that, Patrick, is um, if you notice, it just, and I don't know if I didn't remember for whatever reason, but um, the most recent watch through of it, it takes Joy kind of a long time to sink. It's not like they do the hand flip and then it's perfect. There's still so many things and it's just a testament to who Mariette is and who Joy is and who they are being in front of Kay that, like you said, Mariette, I noticed that too. Mariette has her eyes fully open when she's kissing Kay, whereas Kay and Joy have their eyes closed. And there are different ways that Joy moves when she takes off her dress versus the kind of efficient way that Mariette pulls her top off. It's just like... It's really cool because they're supposed to be like theoretically they will they will have been synced at this point and they should be doing fluid motions together. But these two um, consciousnesses or like organisms, whatever they are, can't quite fit together because they're so different. And because joy, I mean, the way I read joy and I have always read joy is as a being. She is her own being whether she's working for Wallace to kind of further destabilize Kay or like further or even bring him back to baseline by being exactly what he wants. She's her thing and she's doing her thing the way that she wants to do it and the way she's programmed to do it. And Mariette is doing her thing, which is not syncing with joy. It's it's like it creates the sort of fuzzy outline of a girl that looks both like Ana de Armas and um, oh man, I'm forgetting the actress who plays Mariette, but it's it, it's it's weird. The, thank you. Yes, the sort of hybrid face that keeps kind of appearing before Kay, and I in this last one, I was thinking as 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 a person who's like looking through Kay's eyes. Yeah, it's it looks it's weird. It must be so strange to him to see this face that's neither Mariette's face nor Joy's. It's just this fluid picture of both of them. And it just lends itself to the feeling of unease in this scene. So, yeah, it's like, I think I'm finding now being separate from the sort of magic of the first few viewings of the movies. And I just feel so conflicted about this scene and how, and again, I still, I still feel sad. I still feel like a deep underlying sadness because of the question of, joy's actions being solely from programming or being like sort of you know on her own terms so yeah it it just all of that the the trouble with sinking really lends itself to that feeling of unease i i love that you you mentioned that because that was one of the main things when i was watching and i was just taking little screenshots on my phone just so we can sort of have images while we're talking about it too i mean it's similar that typically at least in the scenes is the two are in front of K. They're typically a little more joy-ish. And then when you return to sort of the thesis that I have, but I've not developed fully of people behind each other in this movie, but then later she's behind K and it's 100% Mariette. There's no joy there at all. And it's interesting that in, in what I think a lot of what in both Mike is saying and Patrick is saying comes out in the next couple of scenes where there's the awkward hip holding, you know, slow dance and there's the three hands similar to, or the two hands and K as well as Jamie was saying also about the hands behind K's head. 
Um, and then similarly, then, you know, it moves on to then when they're taking and disrobing. And that's finally really the only time you fully see joy. I mean, that's that's 100 percent joy there, aside from perhaps the hair and the clavicles being about yeah. twice as wide. But that's it's almost as if, you know, that's her sort of trying her best to then show herself. But it's just really interesting that. And everything that Patrick's talking about, everything's Micah talking about, everything I'm talking about, everything Jamie's talking about, that the film um, makers were also bright enough to display that in the weird splicing visuals as well. I mean, the visuals give you all of this, but I think delving deep into this discussion as well also sort of sort of show it. But I just wanted to quickly kind of jump in there that, yeah, there's there's definite parts where at certain instances, they're one and the other. And some they're themselves, I haven't quite come to terms with what each part means, but it's interesting because it's deliberate for when they're showing the positioning of each of them and what exactly, which entity they are. And then my last comment quick before passing it is, I remember at some point in this, and I had no sort of idea of this, but I remember hearing you guys talk about it on an episode of the show or you know there were there was sort of a, a damning article written about oh blade runner 2049 and it's terrible treatment of women oh and there's this threesome and that's kind of the last thing that i think the typical blade runner fan would ever think about this scene i mean at, at no time are you like oh man sweet a threesome dude um it's really i think for most viewers that's sort of the last thing there's three people involved but at no time is this sort of the a a grandiose oh let's 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 give the viewers what they want sort of hollywood threesome aspect to this and i just want to say briefly i really love that for two reasons one is that it serves the story infinitely better that it's not titillating right but two that like it's just it's another way in which denny villeneuve proves himself to not need to fulfill studio obligations all the time because you know like any other director or at least most other directors if they had ryan gosling mackenzie davis and anna de armas in a scene together would be trying to get like full nudity sex shit just to sell tickets right and i love that you have these three like beautiful bankable stars and that it's like a very unsexy experience it is a haunting experience and again like so many other filmmakers would have immediately just given in to the student, because you know that you know that Warner Brothers was giving him notes on that, right? Like, how much can we show? Like, how, can we show maybe like a couple tits? Like, can we get something in the sheet? You know, and it, the fact that he just pushes back on that and gives us this piece of strange, ambivalent art out of it, I just want to say another reason I respect him so much. And all of his films are like that. There's never exploitative things in them. We there are interesting things in 2049 vis-a-vis the treatment of women. And we're going to get to that. We've been cooking up some episodes on that for down the road a little bit. But I think you're absolutely right that this is definitely not a, quote, problematic sequence because of the way that it's not only shot, but the way that it's paced and the way that it's communicating quite a lot about the inner life of these characters in a really complicated way. So, Jamie, go ahead. Well, I, I've been thinking about Mackenzie Davis, Mariette, in this scene and her role in this virus. Does she want to be there? Does she want to be making love to this stranger? I don't think so. She's there because she's a pleasure model and she was called to do what pleasure models do. So we have two people, two, for all intents and purposes, people, 
that are living and breathing, Kay and Mariette. Kay seems a little unwilling. There's even a moment, too, where they take Kay's coat off, like they're undressing him without his consent, um, which is like they pull they pull off his coat and he's kind of like taken aback about with that a little bit. You see Mariette looking at him while they're kissing, but and she's playing her role. She's like, you got a really special lady here. Like she's kind of like, like kind of given the line of like what prostitutes, you know, or replicant prostitutes might give. It just seems like a line she's throwing out. But does Mariette want to be having sex with Kay? I don't know. I don't know if she wants to be having sex with Kay. It's an odd thing. Now, I don't feel this scene doesn't feel titillating to me at all. It does feel seductive, though. I feel like I'm also being seduced by this virtual slash real experience. But one thing I think no one's talked about yet, which I think is telling, the next morning, Kay's in the kitchen, Joy comes from by the corner, and they have this look of satisfaction on their face. They have this look that they've just shared something really special. And Joy is demure, and she's kind of hiding her smile, and he's like, do you want a cup of coffee? And she goes, no. And so there's this really beautiful, yeah, that shot that Peter's holding up a shot of his phone, everyone. Um, It's this beautiful moment between them that something was resolved during the lovemaking. Beforehand, nothing feels resolved, doesn't feel comfortable, it feels seductive, it feels awkward. But the next morning, there's that post-coital look of love between them, which I think is telling. And similarly, you don't see Rachel the next morning in 2019, but you see her at Deckard's apartment and they love each other. And there's they have both come into the realization that they share love together. And you see that with Joy and with Kay. So it's it's really interesting though because in the beginning the setup is Kay doesn't seem like he really wants to be doing what he's doing and Mariette is playing a role that she was made to play um which begs the question like she's in she's essentially a sex slave that's what she was made to be she was made to be a sex slave to please other replicants and people um I don't know how many people are on earth at the same at that point in in Blade Runner history but it is problematic. It really, really is because you have only one person who isn't a person at all, who is joy, who wants to be doing what's actually happening. But the next morning they seem okay with it. So was it okay? I don't really know. I, I just wanted to posit that I don't know if Mariette was in in her true self willing to be a part of that. She was doing the job she was made to do. I'm using the term sex slave, but I also don't know what other term to use. She was created to have sex with people beyond her own consent, you know? And there she is in their apartment having sex with Kay beyond her consent because that's what she was made to do. That's not that sexy to me. I don't know. And I think you're just adding to my campaign against Frasia here in that, you know, Frasia's using Mariette similar to how, you know, I guess the humans would be using, you know, if Mariette doesn't want to be there, um, she's definitely there for a purpose and it's to track K for the use and for extraction by the, the rebel group. And if her purpose is there and she doesn't want to be there, then it's, it's Frasia who's put her in this scenario. Again, it's, it's not fair to Mariette that for any of this, that she has to use her, her body or her, emotion uh, or anything, you know, I guess, you know, maybe it's, I don't know, trying to put yourself in the head. Maybe there's some satisfaction in, in, in duping other humans for purposes for the replicants, but duping another replicant now 
in, in, in using your body against Kay. I don't know if there's any, we don't see that in Marriott's face. She's very, uh, I think, tactile or tactical, not tactile. She's tactile and that you can feel her, but she's tactical, I think, in her, in her movements and her getting Kay to a place where she can then drop that homing beacon on him. But I, I don't know that it's, it's anyone's fault other than Frasia's for her getting her in. And again, I love the fact that Jamie, you brought up the fact that how in the world do they connect? You know, is, is, um, you know, Joy calling her up on the replicant uh, phone and being like, Hey girl, you know, kind of like my guy, let's get together. Let's do this. Or, you know, is, is Mariette reaching out to Joy saying, Hey, you want to be real? I can offer that to you. And here's how we do it. But um, I think the main part that uh, kind of will move this discussion forward is the similarity um, to 2019 and that it does seem, at least in my complicated, you know, everyone has a complicated relationship with the 2019 scene. It, it's, it's not okay. And it's just present in the way it's presented by the movie. And, uh, you know, you all sort of, in your awesome discussion, again, everyone listen to that episode 25. It's, it's, it's a very good one. Everyone attempts in some way to find not, I don't want to say justification because at no time did any of anyone who was on that episode say that the way Deckard treats Rachel is justified. That's not what I'm trying to say either, but everyone's trying to at least find some way into their minds as to why did it happen this way in their world? We know why it was presented and you guys did a great job of presenting uh, the Sean Young um, interview where she talks about that. And she, and Micah did a great job of, of sort of through her eyes showing that, you know, this was not an okay scene as, as an actress either. She's physically um, affected by it beyond acting. She's, she's crying in ways that maybe it's not even acting when she's pushed against the wall and the way that Harrison would treat her on the set and stuff like that. But, I think what I like to view it as um, to get through that scene is, is similar to Kay and Joy in that they are these children trying to befuddle their way through these new feelings. I mean, Kay, we don't know, but it's very unlikely the way he is that he's ever had, you know, sexual encounters before. It's very unlikely that Joy this model of joy, who I do believe similar to Patrick, sorry, Jamie, is, is, ex is exceeding her programming in several ways. It's, it's very unlikely that this, that, um, well, that joy, this, joy is uh, imbued with whatever you want her to be imbued right. with. So you believe that that is what right, you I do to believe. I, I choose to believe <laughs> that she, that she's the perfect virgin and Kay is the only man for her. But I do think that they're too young, inexperienced in these emotions, entities, people, coming together and that's what's so uncomfortable and again there's there's ways of me that wants to believe that Kay that she's comforting Kay after a really hard day she got fired this is a way for her to um just show that she cares and, and wants to say hey maybe I'm enough maybe we can live without you having to be uh beholden to your job you know, would put it in a more real world, but maybe it is nefarious. Maybe it is trying to get back on baseline. It is interesting that in the baseline test, they, when I was listening to it on, on headphones, they do the, you know, have you ever held a hand or held the hand of the one you love that line in the baseline test just before the scene is it's, I don't know, Patrick would know more so, but it's, it's put through some reverb. It's put through something where it, it, it hits different. And then into the next scene is a scene where the hands are all three trying to come together 
And, you know, that's either it, it could be read as K going against that baseline test and being like, fine, you know what? I am going to hold someone. I am going to try and hold the hand of the one I love, or it's nefarious in that it's her trying to say, Hey, get back on baseline. This is what that feels like. Now you can go do your job. You got this out of your system. Um, I don't know. But anyways, it's, it's, it's interesting. I think at least the connection to 2019 is, I think it's a one way to read it is you have two people who, who are, have not done this before and not just the, the act sense of it, but just in the opening yourself up to this. I don't think Kay has ever allowed himself to feel emotion like this. I don't think joy in her programming has ever allowed herself to feel like this. She's gone beyond that. And then of course, Mary, it's just evil because she's one of those crazy evil replicants. That's my line. I think we should probably come to a close, but Micah, I don't know if you had anything else to say, but this has been a really fascinating conversation. And I feel like it's something that this scene goes beyond just this scene. What's at play is at play in so many other places too. There's so much that's built in, built up to the scene, but there's so much we're imbuing in this scene as well, our own understanding. I love this conversation. This is why I love Blade Runner. This is why Blade Runner 2099 better be fucking good. <laughs> so we can have this kind of conversation still. That's the bar, Amazon, Alcon. I think the one, the one last thing in closing that I just want to hit, and again, I just love the fact that, you know, we sort of shifted gears and yet the scene, you know, it's kind of sunk its its hooks in me as we've been talking to you and I can't, I can't stop talking about it. So to you listeners, I'm sorry, but here it is. Here's sort of the end of this too. There's one interesting um, part to this is after the scene, the bookend to it is, um, joy saying, Hey, break my base station. I'll go into the, uh, your gift to me. And she specifically states with Rachel said at no point, which was very clear in your episode 25. And also in that scene that this statement was never said, but joy says to Kay that I want this, you know, but I can't do it myself. She's looking to Kay and she's giving express consent, maybe not to that love scene, but at least in the next scene, there is a something we've never heard anyone say in any of the movies, which is Joy expresses the fact, I want this. I want you to untether me and I want to go out it. And her big point to that is I want to be like a real girl. He says, you know, if you're out there, that could be it for you. And she says, yeah, like a real girl. And I don't know if that's part and sparked. And I'll give Mariette and Frasia credit for that. But, you know, they helped inspire that to her where they said, hey, I've looked in- inside you. There's not much there. And maybe that's joy and sort of her taking charge of herself there and saying, no, let's do it. I can be real. Um, But that's just kind of the last weird, again, this triple, you know, I'm moving my hands back and forth quickly on the camera. So it's sort of in that weird thing, but just the fact that there's these three people and we can't figure out depending on which one, who you're watching um, the intent to this, 
but at least, you know, unlike 2019, at least at some point in the related scenes, there is someone at least extending the fact that they do want something that they are taking charge of themselves and sort of giving their consent to at least the next phase of, of, of their journey here. So that's my last thoughts. And this was really fun, particularly in the fact that obviously I couldn't stop talking this time, which sometimes I have a problem not talking enough. So it's been a fun one, guys. So thanks a lot. I think you should tell talk about it. You have a lot of really cool things to say and like a lot of good jumping off points for everybody else too. I think in closing that this scene is is very and I did, I don't know if I thought this before, but it is a it's a pivotal scene in that things are different afterwards um in very obvious ways and in very subtle ways in the ways that Kay and Joy move through the world without joy's home base as a fallback like going forward there's more vulnerability just merely because of that fact and um like we were talking about there is this sort of spark that k might be the child like there's that that mystery that we're gonna go find out about like when he's gonna go after his maybe father or Deckard or whatever. So things are just different after this night. And it's so interesting that you bring like that. We've been talking about the fact that it's so nebulous and unclear and awkward a little bit. And it's definitely not sexy or titillating at all to me, at least when I view it. And like, like everyone said, I I don't need it to be that it's not really about that. It's about, like you said, Peter, like they're trying to navigate these new emotions kind of naively like children. And I think something that we didn't really get to talk too much about is that to me, Joy's kind of offering of this is pretty naive and childlike. And um, we get to see a lot of that naivete or whatever in Joy. Like when she first experiences the rain outside, she's like a little kid. She's splashing around in it. She like just loves like the feeling of it. And here it's like a little innocent to me. And she's She's like, even she even looks vulnerable when she's like fully undressed um, as it is her, her like pixels of light over Mariette being undressed. She looks like kind of shy about it. She looks down and she's like, is this okay? And is this how you do it? Like, it's almost like a teenager being like, what do we do next? You know? And um, that to me is part of why it is like, that brings the little tender kernel of the scene, more breath and more air. Um, But like we've discussed before, it's all like complicated and kind of churning within Kay. And I think that's what is being shown when he looks a little bit apprehensive. Um, I kind of like what you said, Patrick, about it's awkward. Like, I don't know where to put my hands. And also like Mariette is another person. And to at least to Kay, joy is real. So there's now another person in the room the first time that they are like, quote unquote, making love. So I, I just think it's wonderful to talk about scenes like this with Blade Runner. And like you, Jamie, I love this about Blade Runner. It just makes us all talk about what we see and feel and what we believe and what actually touches us in different ways and what makes us feel uncomfortable or what makes us angry or what makes us sad or and. It's just such a cool movie. And yeah, you're right. The bar is very high. Let's let's end my stuff with that for the next one. 
And I'll just kind of close by saying that I'm excited to talk about the scene in 2019 that we keep discussing, because I do think I'm going to look at it differently as a result of this conversation. And something that I'm thinking as we're sitting here talking is there's a beautiful ambivalence to 2049 that bespeaks the fact that it was made in 2017. There's also a lot of beautiful ambivalence that bespeaks the fact that the first film was made in 1982. But I think that the ambivalence of that particular scene might be accidental and it might be because of when it was made. And that will be an interesting thing to to unpack because we do have multiple things going on at once, right? We have this very lush, you know, stereotypically in some ways romantic scoring, at least in the theatrical cut, um, in the final cut, et cetera, or under this very violent sequence, right? And so like you can watch that and think, oh, it's like the love is so passionate that it's like spilling out, you know, or you can look at it like, why, why are they juxtaposing such pretty music over such a violent thing? So that might have been also very intentional in 1982. And, you know, the people who made that film were incredibly sophisticated. So I would not put them past it, put that past them, obviously. But I also think it might just be that films are made differently now and that social mores are different and the things people are looking for are different. And the films that we make now respond to that in different ways than the ways that films in the 80s responded to it. So I think that's going to be a really interesting conversation. I think this has been a way more interesting conversation than I anticipated. Not like I thought it was going to be boring, but I was sort of like, well, you know, how much is there to unpack in this particular sequence? But like we keep finding on these anatomy of a scene episodes, it turns out there's like a lot to talk about. And I think that's why this format works so well. So thanks to Jamie for suggesting it. And uh, and we'll be back. We're taking a little bit of a break from the anatomy of a scene format for one, maybe two episodes. Then we're going to be back with that one. We keep talking about for 2019. So stay tuned for that. I'm excited. Me too. Thanks for coming on the show, Micah. It's great having you back, Peter. Hopefully you can come back again for the next one. Yeah, thanks everyone. Right in to join my anti-Frasia movement. Uh, to that point, I just have to say this. I like Frasia and the other replicants only because they are the antithesis of of the replicants that we we're seeing. We need someone. We need replicants that we don't really like so much. We don't need to like them all. So it works for me. No, I I love it. I just just don't be so mean to Kay. I mean, come on, he's a puppy dog. Quit <laughs> it. He, he's a nice guy. Thanks. For and also, everybody. I know we're trying to close this, but it, it feel it feels underdeveloped to me that particular story thread. It gets further developed than comics, which is nice. And hopefully, I'm assuming it will be part of 2099. It could be even one of the main storylines for it. But the way that it gets introduced so late in the game in 2049 is, uh, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of strange. I don't know. But maybe there's an anatomy of a scene there, too. Who knows? Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Thanks. If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you. <laughs>